My mind is all too easily boggled. I discovered this some years ago when uh, Paul Davies became a regular on the program and we would discuss uh, matters arising from the realms of science. We turned it into a double-acted ideas festivals and then we took it to television and we did two TV series called The Big Questions. I'd pose them and uh, Paul would give what he insisted were very simple answers. Well, they were never never simple enough for me and to this day I remained, as I say, uh, boggled in the mind department. Well, it's going to be even worse now. I'm about to be more profoundly humiliated as we take a tour of some of the strangest and most numinous numbers in an effort to help better understand this, uh, well, improbable universe of ours and we'll be guided by the wonderful Dr Antonio Padilla. Tony is a leading theoretical physicist and cosmologist at the University of Nottingham and he's now the author of Fantastic Numbers and Where to Find Them, A Cosmic Quest from Zero to Infinity. Tony, with preparation, I welcome you to the Little Wireless program. How did you get started on the book and why? Yeah, well, thanks for having me on, uh, first and foremost. Yeah, I got started. I mean, I've always wanted to write um, a book, of, you know, a popular science book. I've, I mean, communicating science has been a passion of mine, really, ever since I became a professional scientist. Uh, I appeared on on various YouTube channels talking about, about numbers and physics. But I guess the real trigger to writing this book was, was I was actually um, a friend of mine, a very close friend of mine, took ill uh, with, with cancer, and we were trying to raise some money for, for some treatment for him. And one way I thought of doing it was putting together like a, a sort of a talk, a public talk about numbers and physics and, and, and sort of bringing those ideas together. And I went around and I gave some of these talks and collected uh, at these talks. And, um, and you know, we raised a bit of money for him. Sadly, we, we couldn't save him. But I realized afterwards that those talks and what I talked about were a seed for, for a book, that it would come together quite nicely for a book. So in some respects... This is really, um, you know, a tribute to him in that respect. Now, you professors start with the biggest numbers in the universe, but the very first number you talk about seems rather small, if you don't mind me saying, and it has a lot to do with the Jamaican sprinter Usain Bolt. Tell me about it. Yes, yeah, so I think the number is, is, is one point, and then you have, I think it's 15 zeros, 858. So it doesn't seem like a very big number, you know, it's it's barely bigger than one. But the um the reason it's I call it a big number is because it's actually a world record for its size. And that's where Usain Bolt comes in. You see, when Usain Bolt ran his his world record race in, in Berlin, he he actually caused time to slow down a little bit. And the amount by which he caused time to slow down is this number, this one point, 15 zeros, <laughs> 858. And, uh, and that's a world record. So in that sense, it's a big number because it's a record, of course. And it's an illustration of the closer you get to the speed of light, the more you slow down time. Exactly. So really what I'm talking about here is it's a vehicle for me to talk about all Einstein's wonderful ideas about how time and space all get sort of all come together and behave in weird and wonderful ways when things move at high speeds. And of course, you're absolutely right. As you get very much closer to the speed of light, 
time slows down more and more and more until it eventually comes to a stop at the speed of light. Let us now jump into the Marina Trench together. Yes, so Mariana Trench, yes. So uh, indeed, another way to sort of slow down time is to, is one way is to go very fast. The other is to, is to kind of go deeper into a gravitational well. So in other words, to go deeper towards the centre of the Earth. And the Mariana Trench is the deepest point on the, on the Earth. It's the, you know, the deepest part of our ocean. The uh, director, Titanic director, James Cameron, actually went there in the submersible. And so when he went down deep, you know, closest, closest we can get really to the centre of the Earth, he also slowed down time. This time it's not due to the effects of, of moving quickly, but, but, but due to the effects of, of gravity and probing deeper and deeper into the gravitational well of the air. But, the, but the, trench, the trench is, what, 11 kilometres deep, and yet that's deep enough? I mean, the effects are very small. and the, you know, the, the amount by which you slow down time is a very small fraction, but it still happens. And actually, we've measured these effects, right? So, so we, have, um, you know, we have these sort of atomic clocks that go whizzing around the Earth, and you can see how the effect of, of both where they are or how high up they are or how low down they are and how fast they're going changes the amount by which they, those clocks tick. We've actually measured these effects. So these are very much real effects. And actually, one of the most amazing things about it, when your listeners are driving their car and they're using satellite navigation systems, those satellite navigation systems wouldn't work properly if the, it's the system that they were using didn't take into account these effects and how time can tick at different rates depending on where you are and how fast you're moving. Tony, what is a Google, and I'm spelling it correctly, G-O-O-G-O-L, and how on earth did it come about? Yeah, so a Google is, is, a, is, a, is one of my big numbers. Now, I think most people would agree this is a big number. It's a one followed by a hundred zeros. And where it comes from is, um, so there was a, a physicist about 70, 80 years ago uh, called Edward Kasner, who was writing a, a popular science book. And one of the things he was trying to explore was infinity, really. And he wanted to take a very big number and just show that it was kind of not very big compared to infinity. So he said, well, what's a big number? Well, a big number is a one followed by a hundred zeros. Just, just an example of a number that everybody would agree seems big by everyday standards. And he needed a name for it. So he asked his, his nephew, who was nine years old at the time, uh, a guy called Milton Sarotta, if he could come up with a name for this big number, this one followed by a hundred zeros. And uh, Milton came up with a Google, which is actually a work of genius. I think it's a great name. And yeah, so, 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 so that's, that's the origin of the name. And of course, then Kasner went further. He then wanted to build an even bigger number that even made a Google seem small. So he came up with a new number, which was a Googleplex. And so the idea of a Googleplex is it should be huge compared to even a Google. So he said to Milton, he said, well, what should, what should this number be then? And Milton said, well, it should be a one followed by zeros until you get tired. But of course... <laughs> Kasner being, you know, a, a sort of eminent mathematician and physicist wanted something a little more precise. So what he came up with was a Googleplex should be a one followed by a Google zeros. 
So you can see how you know a Google is a one followed by a hundred zeros, and a Google Plex is a one followed by a Google zero. So it's another level of big, and you can carry on building numbers in this way. You say that through these gargantuan numbers, we can start to consider whether doppelgangers are real. Yeah. So, so one of the things I really like to do in my book is try to sort of bring these numbers to life or to give them personality by thinking about sort of physical concepts in our universe. And when I started thinking about a Googleplex, I thought to myself, well, okay, let, let's try to bring a Googleplex into our physical world. What would be the consequences if you had a universe, which was say a Googleplex meters across? Imagine a universe that was that large. What would be the consequences of it? And one of the things I realized was that actually, you would expect to have doppelgangers of me, you, of, of, of basically Donald Trump, everybody. There would be doppelgangers. And the reason is, is that when you think about the number of ways that you can arrange, say, a human-sized volume of space, say roughly a cubic meter of space, how many different ways can you arrange all the atoms and particles and, the, and so on and so forth? There's not that many. It's finite, and it's less than a Googleplex. So... Go far enough and you'll start doppelganger. Oh, Tony, you're a, you're a challenging guest. Now, there's a particularly yeah. dangerous number in your book known as Graham's number. Introduce me to Ron Graham. Yeah, so Graham's number is it's actually a much bigger number than the two we, we've talked about. So we talked about Google and a Googleplex. Well, they're nothing compared to Graham's number. It's another level of big. And... In fact, it was in the, the Guinness Book of World Records as the largest number ever to have been used in a mathematical proof by an American mathematician known as Ron Graham. But again, what I tried to do with the number was think about, well, let's bring it into the physical world. So I knew this number was, was truly gargantuan in, in any kind of meaningful sense. And so I thought, well, what would happen if you tried to picture this number in your head, literally each of its digits written out one by one in your head? And I realized that there was only one possible outcome to that, and that's that your head would collapse into a black hole. <laughs> Heavens above. This is Alan Neal on RN, and our minds are being boggled by um, Tony Padilla about his book, Fantastic Numbers and Where to Find Them. Now, moving from the biggest to the smallest, I remember years ago we did a program celebrating the significance of zero, but remind me of its long and troubled history. Yes, yeah, so zero goes all the way back to, to the Babylonians, and um, they just used it as a, as a placeholder. So they had a, a kind of slightly different number system to us, whereby we normally count our numbers in, in sort of units of 10, 100, and so on and so forth. They use 60s and 360s, those, those kinds of things. And so if they wanted to count that their number had zero 60s in it, they used, they had this symbol for a placeholder for that. So that's that's where it really began. You know, and then it developed towards the East. They, they developed the idea of zero and started using it as a real number that you could use in mathematics. But in the West, it was really mistrusted. They didn't like it. And the reason they didn't like it was because they associated the number zero with the void and with the sort of absence of, of God. And so because of that, they, they saw it as evil. So they mistrusted it. So in the West, it, 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 it was even banned in Florence, the use of it. Of course, in the end, 
because the mathematical power of the number zero, it triumphed in the end. And in fact, it was the accountants in the West that really forced it through because they realized that actually this number zero was really useful for their accountancy. And therefore, in the end, you know, money, money won out there and, and zero started to be accepted with even, even in the West. And so that's why it's so prevalent now. Tony, in the decades I've been doing this program, no one has ever had a good word for accountants until now. Now, <laughs> I'm married to one, so I've got to be nice enough. <laughs> now, you describe zero as the most beautiful number there is. Why? Yeah, so for me, as a physicist, what zero represents is symmetry. So what do I mean by that? So zero is the only number that when you flip its sign, you get the same thing back. So, for example, if I take the number five and I flip its sign, I get minus five, which is a different number. If I do it to 10, I get minus 10, which is a different number. If I do it to zero, minus zero is the same as zero. And it's the only number with this property. So that's a symmetry. And that's, in physics, symmetry is really beauty. It, it dominates our ideas of the last 20th century about how you know, the underlying physics of the universe works. Or everything from subatomic physics, the, the closer you zoom in and try to un unpick the, the, the fundamental fabric of our universe, the more symmetry, the more elegance you start to appear. And actually, the more zeros start to appear. You say that uh, nature doesn't do small numbers without good reason. Yet there are a couple of small numbers that scientists are still scrambling to explain. One of them, of course, relates to the Higgs boson, the so-called God particle. Tell me about that. Yeah, so, I mean, when most physicists talk about the Higgs... Um, they, they tend to do so in a really triumphant way. Oh, we predicted this particle and now it's here and we found it and aren't we, aren't we really great? But what they don't really tell you is that not all is well. Uh, there, is, there is a big worry about it and, and something we really don't understand. And that's its mass. It's actually far, far lighter than our theoretical expectations. Let, so let me interrupt because I want to say this figure. It's a billion, billion times too light. Exactly. It's way too light. The Higgs boson should weigh as much as a, as, an, as a tiny wasp known as a fairy fly. That's how much it should weigh. And the reason is, is that it lives in this sort of ambient quantum fluid and this ambient quantum fluid drags on the Higgs boson and should give it lots of mass. And for some reason, and a reason we don't know, it doesn't. And it's one of the biggest mysteries in theoretical physics today. I introduced you via Paul Davies, and I remember once driving him back from this very radio program, and he said, only three people on earth know what I'm talking about, or no, understand what I'm talking about. How many people understand what you're talking about, Tony? Oh, I don't know. Probably, probably not. Probably not even myself. <laughs> I don't know. But it must make your own brain ache. Yeah, I mean, when you, when you think about these problems like the like the the mass of the Higgs boson, the truth is nobody knows why it is so light. As I said, it's one of the biggest mysteries that we have in physics today. There's like, people have ideas, and there are lots of really cool ideas. Things like you know having doubling up the number of particles there are in nature or extra dimensions. There are loads of really cool and exotic ideas that you can come up with, which I do talk about in my book. But the truth is we found no experimental evidence for any of them yet. That's not to say they're not right. It's just to say that we haven't actually been able to sort of reinforce it with experiment, those ideas, and so the mysteries remain. 
How would Einstein feel about these uh, these more recent discoveries? Yeah, so, I mean, of course, Einstein famously said um, God does not play dice. He was very mistrusting of, of quantum theory and um, and all that. But, of course, I think Einstein would, would, would now recognise that quantum theory has been an absolute triumph of theoretical physics. And these remaining puzzles, well, I think Einstein would be excited by them. I think as a theoretical physicist, it's absolutely the things that you don't understand, the puzzles that, that give you a portal of discovery, if you like. They give you a window into, into, into learning something new. Because, you know, I think famously at the end of the 19th century, they said that they pretty much had physics nailed. And then just around the corner with a few little puzzles, they stumbled across all of relativity, all of quantum theory, and all this wonderful, wonderful new physics. So it's those little puzzles that you find, that's where the discovery is going to be. I now want to finish by probing your obviously infinite intelligence by asking you to talk about infinity, like zero. I believe there was initially a bit of resistance to the idea. Exactly. So, so the problem is that when you start playing with infinity, all manner of, of sort of weirdness this happens. Like, so you can you can see this straight away. Like, you can ask yourself the questions. Well. Are there more numbers? So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and so on, all the way up to infinity, whatever that is. Are there more whole numbers or even numbers? So I only take two, four, six, eight, so on, right? So you naively think there are more whole numbers, right? Because it's got all the odd numbers. But it turns out that's not true. There are actually the same number as even numbers as there are whole numbers. Now that is just mind blowing, right? How can you possibly say that there are the same number as even numbers as there are whole numbers when the whole numbers also contain the odds? It doesn't make any sense, but, it, but it's correct. And the reason is quite subtle. What you can do is you can take every even number and you can map it to every whole number. So all you have to do is you just have to halve it. Okay, so every even number can be labeled by one of the whole numbers just by halving it. So that proves that there are actually the same number of each. And this it's these kinds of paradoxes that I think many sort of mathematicians found sort of daunting. This, this, here be dragons, here be, here be absolute kind of chaos and madness in some sense. And they really took a brave mathematician, George Cantor, the German mathematician George Cantor, to really embrace this idea and to take on infinity and try to go beyond it, which is what he did. He saw it as a religious quest. He, he did, he did, he's a very religious, deeply religious man. And I think in the end, he really did see that, that this reaching out to infinity, reaching into these infinite heavens, as, a, as I talk about it it, it, it did feel divine to him. But in some sense, it also sort of led him towards an infinite hell because he, he suffered very much in his life with, um, with manic depression and, and, and the extent to which it was, it was to do with, with this sort of chaos of his discovery, I, I don't know, but it, it certainly, he, he found life quite difficult and, and, in, and in the end he, he died in quite tragic circumstances. Tony, you're in a very dangerous profession, but thanks for finding time to come onto the programme. I've been talking to Dr Tony Padilla, theoretical physicist and cosmologist at the University of Nottingham, and his book is Fantastic Numbers and Where to Find Them. It's published by Penguin random house. Thanks, Tony. Thank you very much. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. 
You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.